0: Our passage this morning is found in the New Testament, the epistle of James, and we started it last week, so a lot of what's going to be discussed this morning flows out of our discussion, or I should say, I began last week. But um, just by way of introduction, James um, is actually considered to be the brother of Jesus, and that is a very fascinating thing to think about. Um, He's an apostle, and he left us this letter that many have struggled with. It's very different language, and that's one of the reasons I love it so much is it challenges us to really lean in and find the theology that's so obviously in this letter, but he uses such different terminology than the apostle Paul or Peter. And a lot of that is what he does is he speaks in language that's more like the wisdom literature From the Old Testament. But what if it's also possible that just because he's grown up with Jesus, he shares a language like Jesus? A lot of scholars have said a lot of the language he uses mirrors a lot of the things Jesus says in in the Gospels. And so it's just a beautiful opportunity that the Spirit, Holy Spirit has given us to have a fresh understanding of the gospel. And so, with that in mind, let's now look at our passage starting in verse 2 of chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, Gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures, this is the word of the Lord. let's pray, Heavenly Father, we praise you for your gospel truth and Lord, one of the most profound realities is we can hear these words we can we can believe in so many ways that we these words as doctrinal truth but for, Father forgive us because so often when we come to the minutiae Of our lives, the day-to-day, moment-by-moment things, this can seem a million miles away. Teach us, Lord, to approach the moment-by-moment life we live with these words, with your gospel. Teach us, Lord, that you have called us to live now in this present moment with you and your gospel driving everything we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I remember when I first heard it, and I, and it's the title of this sermon, and that is the famous or the, the somewhat popular phrase, the gospel is the answer to every problem you'll face. For me, it, the time I remember most clearly hearing it was at a church planting conference in Japan where a a leader, church leader from, from RTS Florida named Steve Childers, who was part of The Sonship Discipleship Program came to teach church planters how to get along, how to love each other, how to have renewed faith, and he made that statement. And one of the the effects of that statement for myself and Emily, as we process that reality, it's still there, is you begin to look around your world and you ask the question, how does the gospel fix that? How does the gospel answer that one? Now, let me be clear. By the word gospel, I'm simply referring to Jesus and all of his benefits. The gospel is that Jesus has come, and, he, and now we are united to Jesus, and we have all of his benefits applied to us, and that is the gospel message, and it's the answer to every problem. So we come to James, and James has the audacity to say, find it joyful when you have a problem. Another way you might, you might even say that: enjoy a problem, have have creativity about your problems, and I and I think most of us can understand that, that would be optimal. But I think if we are like me, often, what we do, what we often do, is we misunderstand the trials of our lives. We actually see them as the problem, and so for us, oftentimes these things that are annoying, these trials that are, whether they're huge or small, whether we even are fully aware of them or not, we would almost theologically and philosophically say they're in the way, they're the problem. And yet for James and for the entire New Testament, what problems seem to do is not be, they do don't—they aren't the problem, but they simply reveal the deeper problems, right? And so by word problem, I mean the effects of sin and death that Jesus came to fix and to heal us from and to rescue us from. So I would argue, and I think James is going to, and this whole sermon is going to argue this, that the gospel is the answer to every problem, right? And because that's true, Christians, you and I, if we are in Christ, we now have the opportunity to actually joyfully move into the places of our lives that we would call trials or tests. It's a radical shift. It doesn't come all at once. We have the rest of our lives to continue to process and grow in this. But my prayer this morning is that that truth will begin to sink in for you and me. So what we're going to look at uh, four different things. Um, one is the goal of trials, the process of trials, the obstacle of trials, and the power To face our trials. So the goal of trials, uh, in order to understand any of this, I I remember last week I shared with you that, you know, those movies where a superhero or the hero of some kind is training. And what we talked about was in order to understand a trial correctly, as James writes about it, we have to understand that there's a much larger goal. And that so often in the church, in the Christian church in America, I, I think we've missed this because we've separated the future hope of heaven from the present reality of our lives. There's become sort of a a split, if you will. And quite frankly, that's what James is calling being double-minded. And yet what the Bible teaches very clearly is that Christians see themselves as already living in the already, they not yet. I'm currently in this world living out my future glory. And that's really what we're going to talk about. So the goal then of a trial is to see a growth, an advancement in my current expression of the gospel. Where is that in our text? Well, let's look at chapter one where we are, verse four. Paul has said to, or James has said to count it all joy. When you face trials, and then he says that builds your steadfastness. And then in verse 4, he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That doesn't mean that you'll have zero problems, zero sins this side of heaven. What it means is the trajectory is completion. The trajectory is, is that you will eventually get to the goal and that there's a progression of that, of that reality. In verse 12, and the reason why this is, I think this entire passage really is linked together, is he picks up that same concept in verse 12 when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. There's that word again. Under trial, there's that word again. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, the word crown in this context, and to the ancients, to the original audience, would have meant the wreath that a person running a race or in an athletic competition receives upon finishing the race, right? What's fascinating is he doesn't say the winner gets it, he says all of his people whom he is. Called will get this wreath when we finish this race, we will have a crown of life. And then last week, I shared this. I believe the real heart of this passage, the, the central point, is in verses 9 and 10 when he says, Let the lowly brother boast in exaltation. There's something about this idea of being exalted. The shorter catechism actually speaks of exaltation when it talks about Jesus in question 22. It says, wherein does Christ's, is, does Christ's exaltation consist? And the answer, Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, ascending into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and then later coming to judge the world in the last days. Now, judgment is a scary word, but we know as Christians, the judgment is going to be Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus himself, at the beginning of his ministry, when the Spirit came upon him and his father said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Right before the testing, we have received in our salvation the Holy Spirit, and we are now ripe and ready like Jesus for testing. And it's going to strengthen us and grow us. But the goal is that we will continue to be built into a glorious uh, representative of the kingdom of God as we grow and grow and grow into glory. And so the key I'm trying to press in on is that we don't want to separate what happens in this life from the one to come. They, they go together. One of my favorite ways of articulating it, or that I've ever heard it articulated by someone else, is Francis Schaeffer's illustration of the glorious ruin. That you know, I've not. If you go to Europe or you, you see these ruins of these castles, I would imagine you would just be filled with wonder at all of the what was what was the structure like? What could it be? While also noting, in a way, the sadness at the brokenness and the condition of it. And so what we have in the gospel is this promise that James launches into right here that you and I, this since we've become Christians, are being renewed and, and life is coming to us and we're being exalted with our Savior Jesus right now. And that happens. That's our goal, which helps set the context of trials. One way I was thinking about that is, is like if you received a key that could unlock any door. If that was something that was given to you and you had this thing and it was like a, ma- like a skeleton key was the old term, but this kind of magical key, what would you do? Well, you're in a parking lot and you see two people fishing in and trying to unlock their door and they're locked out. I think you would pull the key out and you would go attempt to use it in that context, and so what you would find is this gift you 've been given you would begin to try to use to help and serve others and, and to just experience it and you 'll become better at using it as you go and so the gospel has come to you and freed you and, and you've you 've now been transferred from the god, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of jesus god 's beloved son and and now we have this opportunity to be all we were ever meant to be to have this this structure rebuilt, this ruin, right? And so how does this work um, in, in this life? That's the question. And I think the doctrine then that you find, also I mentioned the shorter catechism a moment ago, question 35 says sanctification is this. It's a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. What are what are the writers of that short shorter catechism teaching us that the scriptures teach that this side of heaven between justification and glorification is a process of growing in righteousness and holiness. But please hear me. This is a relational righteousness. We are not simply becoming better people by ourselves, we're becoming better because we're becoming more dependent on who on our Heavenly Father. We're becoming more aware of our union to Him in Christ, and this overflows through joyful approach of the trials in our world. In 410, one of the things I want to just, I'm going to do a few times is talk about chapter 4. It's important in expository preaching to know this was this is a letter, and it's a very short letter. If I were to read this all the way through to you, it would take just a few minutes, and yet when you do expository preaching, you can labor for months and maybe longer in a letter, and yet it's very important that we realize the listeners would have heard this first introduction, and then chapter four, not long later, which really recaps much of what we have already heard. And in chapter 4, verse 10, James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So point number one, the goal of trials is to experience exaltation now that we will one day face completely. That's the goal, to be close to our Father, to be in the presence of our Savior. Just to kind of close this point out, I want to remind you of a movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to really spend a, that much time on it, but George Bailey wants to travel. He marries Mary, who's always loved him since they were little. She wants to stay in Bedford Falls. Uh, on their honeymoon, they're finally he's finally about to take a vacation and go travel with his wife And they have a problem and they have to stay in the town. And then the problem is solved. And it's now time for him to go home to his wife for the first time. It's their wedding day. And she has always loved this ruin. She's always loved this home in the middle of town that's been abandoned. And yet it had so much glory. And he would throw rocks through the windows and make wishes. And other people thought it was just trash. But she saw the glory and the beauty in that structure, and so when he remembers it's his wedding day after this dilemma at the bank or at the uh, savings and loan, he travels to where they tell her him they now live, and he sees this ugly ruin and it's raining outside and he and he goes in and he hears music playing and he sees two. Uh, little chickens or something being turned on a spigot in the fireplace. And he he sees the master bedroom with the beautifully made bed, and he sees excitement. And what you have in that scene is a beautiful picture of a future goal, of this home being filled with children and fully restored already, even though it looks totally dilapidated, already having glory. Glory. And the reason is she was able to go in with creativity with this future in mind and creatively make fun adjustments to this home that would progress and progress and progress. That's the setup for understanding this passage. If we're not there, if you don't have that kind of in you, if you don't see that as you come to this text, then nothing James says will make any sense. But if you do have that in your mind, then we can better understand the process. Our second point is what is the process of these trials? And we've talked, that's really where I spent, I think last week, the majority, but I just wanted to explain a trial. Um, a trial or a test, the Greek word is the same, is anything that really, that really exposes the quality of the material. Um, if you think about... Uh, some form of maybe rocket science where you need to take a material and put it under extreme uh, duress to know how will it handle a future mission kind of a thing. That's kind of what trials and tests are. They they reveal the quality of the structure. And what's absolutely amazing is the assumption is that oftentimes they're going to find problems. That's actually okay. I mean, when you understand this passage, you find that what James is teaching is that these tests, these trials reveal super vulnerable places where you have not yet seen uh, God's truth come to to reign, right? There's all of these rooms and this structure that's going to be rebuilt that have not been touched yet. And so rather than being discouraged by that, James is saying, we have this amazing opportunity in light of the exaltation of, of point number one, to then bring these things to bear in everyday life? And what does that look like? And the answer is wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is simply God's truth applied to very real situations. What will happen is we'll learn a doctrine, we'll learn something in the Bible, and it will look lovely. And then we'll go into our daily life, and we won't see any connection. Right? This happens all the time. And so wisdom, according to James, is, is really, I'm, I'm kind of taking all of my understanding of wisdom from other places, it's his way of saying the Spirit's application of the truths of Christ to a particular situation. In Psalm 1, James, uh, the psalmist famously says, blessed is the man who, and then he gives some negatives, doesn't do these things, but... His delight is in the law of the Lord. On that law, the word of God, he meditates day and night. Now, the three things that are the negative, blessed is the man who doesn't do these three things, involve standing, sitting, and walking with wickedness, with evil, with scoffers. And really what you find is this, a man who, that walking and sitting and standing, that's really your entire life. Everything you do other than sleep involves walking, sitting, or standing. And, and what James is, or what the psalmist is teaching, is that a godly man approaches all of their life through meditation, whereas someone else, the non godly man, approaches their life separately. From this and tries to then go into each situation out of them, a sense of themselves and ends up being in the seat of scoffers and walking with the wicked, etc. So, what's the point? Wisdom is applying the realities of the truth of the gospel of the entire scriptures to daily problems, to real issues. In Psalm 2, meditation is actually called plotting. And I've talked about this before. So the process is not one of just smiling, remembering verses that you love. But the process is actually hard. It's coming to these places that are very challenging, very difficult, and saying, I believe this over here to be true, and then longing to see those things come to bear in this reality. Uh, a silly example then a better application. The, the, the silly example is those studies they do with children where uh, they can predict the children who will have more self-control and success in later years by how they handle this predicament. They'll place them uh, in a room, they'll have the camera on them, uh, they'll tell them these instructions, something like here you're supposed to do this worksheet or something We'll be back in 25, 30 minutes. Oh, and here's some candy. And they place like M&M's or something in a bowl. And don't touch those is the instruction. And there's some reason. Like later we'll come back and we'll see how you did. And then you can maybe have a marshmallow or M&M's. And some of the children, the camera's on them. They just can't handle it. They've got to just, they've got to take the candy. They've got to eat the food. But the, the children who can withstand that temptation don't like candy less they what they are what's going on for them is they're able to connect to their future reality in a much more tangible way you might call that wisdom the instructions are very real to them they make sense to them now if that's a silly example let me try to give you a better application of this process consider a trial One of the things I'm advocating for, and I know that noise, I don't know if you can hear that at home. I'm sorry. I'm gonna plug through it. Um, Most of the time we think of huge, huge trials, huge things. I wanna advocate for very small, very insignificant, seemingly insignificant things because according to James, um, it's it's really the minutiae, I think, of daily life. As you read the rest of his letter, that will, I think, prepare us for when the larger scale trials do come. And so just as an example, we actually, in our confession of sin, it kind of got hinted at. If someone brings a criticism to you, let's call that a trial. If someone criticizes you, either to your face, through gossip, on social media, however it comes, when you receive that criticism, that's a trial. Why? It it shakes you. It it hurts you. It I think shame shows up and says, see, you're not as good as you thought you were. All sorts of evils can come in that moment of that trial with that criticism. And what I think the process James is outlying is this when a criticism comes, all of those all of those other things will begin to try to take over my mind, my heart. And James is saying, Pray. For wisdom. And he's actually saying, turn to your heavenly father in prayer and and claim the promises of scripture. What are these promises? For example, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love. In a moment of criticism, that's what we need. There's been some relational breach. There's been some issue that's come our way that makes us wonder are we as bad as that person thinks? Do other people think it? Um, is it true? You know, And we begin to just cycle through. And what James is teaching is that in those moments, what we ought to do is the process is actually turn toward the truths we believe about ourselves and long for through meditation and prayer, ask the Lord to give us wisdom and apply those situations to the very thing we're suffering from right now. And when that happens, when that process works, what actually can occur is a a love for the person who criticizes you. You would actually love them. Jesus teaches, love your enemies. You've heard it said, you know, hate your enemies, love your friends. He says in Matthew 5, I I say to you, love your enemy. Right. You might also even be able to say, by the way, part of what they said is kind of true. And so what you find is when the gospel is working, the truths of Scripture are being applied to this moment. Life is coming to your body. Life is coming to that relationship. Life is coming where evil was meant to harm you. Life is now there to bring, to bring you exaltation. So that's the, that's the process. We'll talk more as we go, but we're going to try to move toward the, the third point is the obstacle where I want to spend a few moments. The obstacle, I think, is where we live most of the time, unfortunately. What do I mean? Well, and James says, when you, when you lack wisdom, you pray that God would give it to you, but don't doubt the wisdom. He's not saying that God will give you an answer to the problem that'll be obvious, but you better not doubt that God will give you that answer. That's not what he's teaching. What he's actually teaching I'll just read the verses, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. What he means is don't doubt that the thing, the truth, the scripture, will actually heal the problem. So, if a criticism comes, and I know the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself And I think to myself, that's not going to actually help this situation. That's not the answer I'm after. Thanks, God. Thank you for that truth. I'm still feeling frustrated over here. So I'm going to kind of live this life with my frustration here. And I'm going to sort of hold out over here this truth that I say I believe. And I've now become double-minded. And that's what James is teaching. And the heart of his point is borne out in the next part of our passage, verse fourteen, where he says, "Each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire." The Greek word for tempted there is a verb form of the Greek word for test and trial that are nouns. So, what James is teaching here is the trial that comes is is sort of a thing; it's an external thing, a criticism. But the temptation then is when my own heart, my flesh heart, is lured away. That's what verse 14 teaches. I'm lured away. Why am I lured? I'm lured by this hatred, this anger. Maybe I'm going I'm to reply to that criticism. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about them over here. And pretty soon, if I'm not careful, what I've done is I've addressed my trial through the lens, through this this process of temptation of being lured through sin. And so when you come to verse 14, and it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then verse 15, and desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. It's important that we don't think just of sin as these technicolored awful things as much as, more importantly, the things we do in our rebellion. Right? What are the things you, steps you take when trials come and you don't turn to God, you turn to self? That's what he says, James' teaching, is what the sin is in your life. And if you back up one verse then, he says this in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. And so you might, I've never said that. Have you ever said that? We never say that. Do you? No one says that. Well, we do say it. Every time we choose self and we use fleshly methods of dealing with our trials, we're looking at God and saying, I don't trust you. You caused this. John Calvin says it this way. James treats here temptations, which are inward, and they're nothing else than the inordinate desires which entice us to sin. He justly, James, justly denies that God is the author of these temptations because they flow from our corruptive nature. His warning is very necessary for nothing is more common among men to transfer, I'm sorry, nothing is more common among men than to transfer to another the blame of the evils that we commit. And then especially to seem free themselves when they ascribe that to God himself. So, what's he saying? I see a trial. I'm lured by temptation. I'm lured into some kind of a sinful response. And when I think about my sin and my response, it's, I tend to blame people. Think of the garden. She made me do it, the woman. Or the serpent. And There's all these excuses. That's, that's what sin does. A trial comes. We're enticed into sin. And then we blame others, which is ultimately saying, God, it's the woman you gave me. You see, God. If you were doing your job, this wouldn't have happened. How can you blame me? So James's point: You're saying God tempted you. That's the obstacle, and that's where we find ourselves in our in our temptations to sin. Rather than turning to the Lord, we're turning away from Him. And it's ultimately a relational breach. We see this in James four again. He says. Uh, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What he's saying, when we choose our worldly methods of dealing with our trials and our temptations, we're choosing friendship with the world's methods. We're saying gossip is the best thing. Anger is the best thing. Uh, Slander, um, whatever, any kind of a fleshly response of sin. And that very action is enmity with God. We're saying God is, is not to be trusted. And then he says this, and listen to this relational word. He and I'm he says of, of God. He says he yearns jealously over you. The Greek, the way it reads in the H-E-A, the ESV is he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. But when you read the Greek, the concept is God yearns jealously over you. Jealousy is such an interesting word choice because jealously, jealousy is always, when we think of it, between two humans. And it's always a person over-loving another person, over-needing. Uh, in other words, thinking that the other person can somehow complete them, they feel jealousy, like I, almost a sense of ownership. Now, that is a very broken and dark Word in that context, but there is one relationship where it 's perfectly fitting: God does love you you God does complete you, and God does have you, right? We are his, and so in that sense, we are fully known and fully loved only by God, the one who created us and so in our redemption, what James is teaching is we have a holy spirit who is jealous for all of you, all of all the parts of your being. So when a trial comes and we're sort of tempted to choose another lover, the lover of self, of, of, of the world methods, we're basically turning our back on God. And he says, when you do that, you're sinning. It's a fascinating reality. But then at the end of that little part, he says, but God gives more Grace. And therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, here's where we are. We're going to finish our discussion by looking at this last point, the power. But I just want you to know when the criticisms come, when the trials come, any kind of a trial comes, the steps are, number one, to pay attention to its existence. I think we often blow right by it into our strategies, learning to pay attention to these places. And then secondly, in paying attention to them, praying with our Heavenly Father for help. Lord, I don't have the resources. I pray for wisdom. That's the goal. But where does that power ultimately come from? James tells us, as I've already said, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And listen to where James grounds that power source to do these things we're talking about. In verse seven, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, how do I do that, James? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He's talking to Christians. A non-Christian christian cannot draw near to God. They're dead in their trespass. But as a believer who has the Holy Spirit, you and I, when a trial comes, can draw near to God. But listen to what he, the language he uses. Remember, he takes concepts from other New Testament writers and gives us different language. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. See how chapter 4 dovetails from chapter 1, he's saying you need purification, you need cleansing. But wait a minute, I'm already a Christian, I know. So you're, you're saved, you're justified, but we need to continue to go to the cross for purification, for cleansing. He even says in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. And it's fascinating how this really follows the same cascade that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn, and blessed are the meek. And that's how James finishes. He says, um, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he says, he will, he will give grace to the humble. By the way, laughter to, to mourning, joy to gloom. Not godly laughter, not godly joy, but false Worldly laughter that ignores the trials of our life. He's saying, Weep over the trials. Weep over these problems. What are we, what's He ultimately telling you to do? Come to the cross. That's what He's saying. We talk about this every Sunday. We oh, end up at the same place. A trial in your life reveals a place in your heart where you are still committed to self. And what, what the gospel tells you you need more than anything is the cross yet again. And I think one of the best places we see that is Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And his point is this, at any trial that we face, any issue that we face, if the thought of the cross just seems foolish or distant we are str- we are heading down the wrong path of double mindedness we're saying with our lips oh i believe the gospel but our but our actual lives are going down another way and it's going to destroy relationships um it's going to destroy parts of your very being it's like blood being cut off to parts of your brain if the blood of christ is not set free to flow into every nook and cranny of your being then this structure that has this gloriousness to it is going to be like a tiny little clubhouse built with hardly anything and has the potential to have been such a great structure. And Jesus is saying, I want to grow you like that, all of you, meaning all the parts of your structure into this glorious, this glorious um, edifice that is exalted. I think so often we are so unsure of what to do with the gospel because it's so much bigger than we've ever dreamed. And the good news is um, this is the process by which it happens. The way up is indeed the way down. So I want to conclude by just naming the song that we're going to close with. We're about to sing It Is Well With My Soul. A few weeks ago, I referenced that song and said, Be Careful. Uh, And the reason was I had met with a person and 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 I think others have said this too, that if you're not careful, we just apply the chorus. Like, here's a situation I should be, I'm kind of upset about. A trial has come, and uh, it's annoying me, and it's a trial to test. You know what? I should say it as well with my soul. I should just be able to say that. That's not the song. And so uh, what I was really advocating for then, and especially this morning, is a fresh look at this song to be un- to understand this entire topic and if you'll remember the song is written by a father who's lost several daughters in a shipwreck and he's now sailing across the same ocean comes to the very place is told this is the location and I don't know if it was in that exact moment or if that moment spurred the this hymn but what he begins to do as he begins to process his trauma, his, his tragedy, this, this, this grief, this trial, through the gospel, through the cross. So I'll just read you the lyrics, and then when we sing it, of course, you'll have an opportunity. He begins by saying, When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Now, again, in the good or the bad, you've taught me to say this. But then in the next verse, he says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. What he says there is this, the reason that the cross comforts me in every trial is I'm always brought back to that place of helplessness and in need of the Savior's blood. And so when trials show up and I'm tempted to address them through my flesh, Horatius Spafford is saying, no, you're actually beckoned to the cross again, which leads us to the next verse. My sin, I love this verse. My sin, he interrupts himself. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, and he interrupts himself again. Not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Someone criticizes you. You feel like you are crushed to the core. And what he tells you to remember is, wait a minute. Your sin is nailed to the cross. Not just in part, but the whole. And so what he's teaching here is, through praise i can i can address the trial in his last verse and lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll What is he saying i long for glory and, I, and when my faith turns to sight i don't know if james chapter 1 is what motivated this hymn but here's a man who at one of the greatest trials you can even conceive of, at the loss of, of three, I believe, three daughters, at the at the ripping out of his own heart, he's able to feel the peace of God because he sees it through the lens of the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is a this is a gift. This is the gospel. And if we long to be able to respond to these kinds of large trials that may come like he does, we have to begin to turn to these smaller, more minutiae trials of, of relationship, of how we get along with people in our church, in our homes, um, etc. cetera. What, what trials are coming at you where you can now take to the Lord through the cross and say, Lord, I long to believe this truth in real time because I know you have saved me and nailed my sin to the cross. I can now face these trials. I've gone a little over. Uh, Last week, I went a little under. So hopefully the balance is the same. Um, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll have our confession of faith. Heavenly Father, I praise you that the gospel is true. And Lord, the, the waves of life buffet Though sea billows roll, though tragedies come, some of them in the form of almost unimaginable hardship, others come at us like a staccato of just little tiny pricks trying to tell us how bad we are or how much of failures we've been. And yet in either case, and in all cases, what you've taught us in this passage is to be lowly to go to the cross so that we would be exalted, with, not on our own, but exalted with Jesus, living right now in this life as already risen in Christ. But Lord, I know that in order that for this to work, we need your Spirit. We need, we need your Spirit to open our eyes to see hurt and pain Lord, oftentimes we need to look at past stories and past relationships to see how our flesh tried to protect us. Lord, the unbearable heartache that we've probably ruined friendships and relationships and damaged people, and yet you would call us, even with those sins, to trust that they've been nailed to the cross, that we bear them no more. So we're free to reimagine ourselves what it would look like to love again, to care for people whom we've written off. Lord, to love even our enemy. Holy Spirit, we need this now. In your name we pray. Amen.